This is an AMI podcast. Good morning. It's Friday, August the 19th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Starting this Friday like I'm shot out of a cannon. Coming up on the show today... It's weekly news panel time with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Today we consider several recent stories regarding the rollout of the federal $10 a day child care program. We'll also discuss the issues surrounding CTV's dismissal of news anchor Lisa LaFlamme. And we look at some of the new language data released by Statistics Canada. In the second hour of the show, entertainment critic Michael McNeely reviews the sci-fi romance drama... Little Fish. And Mary Mamaliti drops by to chat about season two of Dish with Mary. And we've got a giveaway for you. Some stuff that you could win. Stay tuned for that one. I will not tell you the details right now. You've got to be here at about 10.45 a.m. Eastern time to find out just what you can win and how you can win it. But let's begin the story. Begin the show with our top story of the day. Transport Minister Omar Algebra will testify today before the House of Commons Transport Committee on airport and airline delays. Lori Paris looks ahead. Airlines and airports have been grappling with a surge in customers this summer, compounded by staffing shortages affecting both carriers and federal agencies. It's caused widespread flight cancellations, baggage delays and lengthy lineups, particularly at Toronto's Pearson International Airport. The Transport Committee voted unanimously last week to hold a hearing on the delays and invite Algabra to testify. Transport Canada says it has been working with industry partners to improve conditions at airports and cited fewer cancellations and delays in the first week of August compared with a month ago. Lori Paris, the Canadian Press. While the transport minister does that, the prime minister will travel today to the Magdalen Islands in Quebec. Rob Westgate has Justin Trudeau's itinerary. Trudeau's office says he is the first prime minister in two decades to visit the small archipelago in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. His island tour will include a stop at a microbrewery and a bakery. The islands are geographically closer to the Maritimes, but are a part of Quebec. All but a handful of the 12,000 residents cite French as their mother tongue, and more than 75% speak only French. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press. Let's get to a few stories about energy and climate. Enbridge's case against the state of Michigan took a step forward yesterday. A Michigan judge has again ruled in favor of the company, saying Governor Gretchen Whitmer's bid to shut down Line 5 oil and gas pipeline should be heard in federal court. Enbridge argued that shutting down the pipeline would, quote, defy an international treaty with Canada that has been in place since 1977. Whitmer's efforts have been focused on proving the state's right to shut down Line 5, saying it poses an ecological threat to the Strait's of Mackinac, sorry, apologies, between Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. Federal Environment Minister Stephen Guibo and Nova Scotia Minister Tim Hallman have announced a series of agreements to protect forests and coastal lands. Guibo outlined the protections. This includes initiatives such as exploring the proposal of a new national urban park at Blue Mountain Birch Cove's Lakes with key partners such as the Halifax Regional Municipality, the Nova Scotia Nature Trust, uh, the Nova Scotia Mi'kmaq. Work towards the establishment of a newly proposed Atlantic Archipelago National Wildlife Area, as well as three other proposed national wildlife areas. The aim is to create that archipelago 
and National Wildlife Area by late 2024. Uh, Grace Scofield, I need to borrow your knowledge of the Great Lakes and uh, the Lake Huron and Lake Michigan neck of the woods. Help me with that pronunciation that I butchered on the Line 5 story. Uh, pronounced Mackinac. Mackinac Straits. The Straits of Mackinac. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that, Grace. Let's jump over to another climate story. A new study shows bees are significantly impacted by climate change. And Donahue has more. Researchers took photos of thousands of bumblebees to study the evolution of their shape during the 20th century. Aoife Cantwell-Jones at Imperial College in London noticed bees were different during times that were hot and wet. The wings um, are more different on the same bee, so this kind of could be an indicator that bees uh, maybe had a bit more stress in those years that were hotter and wetter. The bumblebee specimens date from 1900 to 2000. Experts say dead bumblebees are easy to preserve. There's a possibility of other factors contributing to a change in a bee's shape. Given climate change and given that we're predicted to have a lot more hot weather, I think we, we could be a bit worried about how bees are doing in the future. According to the United Nations, a third of the world's food production depends on pollination from bees, and their population has been declining for more than a decade. I'm Ed Donahue. Yo, big ups to Ed Donahue for getting that bee track, literal wild sound on that report. Well done, Ed. Props to you. Let's turn to the world of technology. Apple has announced that there is a security flaw in their software. Daria Albinger has the story. If you have an Apple iPhone, iPad, or Mac, you may notice that you need to update your software. Don't put it off. Charge up your device and download it now. The company suggests you do it as soon as possible, saying up-to-date software is your best defense against what it's describing as serious vulnerabilities. Apple says out-of-date software could make it easier for hackers to take complete control of the devices. Daria Albinger, ABC News. One more story here. It's an update on something we shared with you yesterday. The judge who authorized the search warrants for former U.S. President Donald Trump's Florida estate has given the U.S. Justice Department until next Thursday to come up with a detailed justification as to why a partially redacted affidavit should not be released. The hearing was held yesterday with some media organizations appealing for the information to be released. The DOJ has previously expressed that releasing those details may compromise current and future investigations. That's the news. Let's get to our daily polls. At AMI-audio is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. On Thursday, we asked you, what is the best part about going to a fair? 31% of you said food. 23% of you said rides. 23% of you said games. And 23% of you said music. So pretty much uh, even split there through and through. I mean, I guess food takes the cake by just a teensy bit there. But uh, lots of folks enjoying all aspects of the fair across the listener land and viewer vortex. Today's daily poll. At AMI Audio on Twitter, Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. We'll touch on this a little bit in the news panel. Do you have plans to learn a new language? If yes, let us know how you plan to do so in the comments. Yes or no. I'm a uh, yes, but I'm a yes with a caveat. I've been talking about trying to learn Spanish for years, and I did make a little progress in Duolingo back in 2015 and 2016. Then the project was abandoned. I need to uh, get back on that because I want to learn Spanish for the sake of a little bit of traveling. Grace Scofield, what about you? Any plans to learn a new language? I tried to learn Swedish on Duolingo, and I did pretty well. I got through, like, a bunch of the lessons, and then it just kind of fell off. And I don't know why I chose Swedish. I think it was like a, it's a pandemic and I'm bored, what mm -hmm. can I do kind of mm -hmm. thing. 
Um, so I decided to choose Swedish, and it was fun and I had a good time, so maybe I'll get back to it. Hey, there's always an opportunity to go watch some fun hockey in Sweden. Exactly. Lots, lots of good sports stuff to do in Sweden. That could be your beat. You could be on the Swedish hockey beat. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring in Mike Ross. Mike, I know that you're uh, fluent in French, you're fluent in English. Any plans to learn more languages? Um, is, can we say music is a language? Sure, why not? I would say okay. I would say music's a language. I would say American Sign Language is a language. There's all kinds of stuff we could be learning. Yeah, I think I think I've I've sort of been thinking about that a lot because um, I played a few instruments back in high school and I thought recently, you know, eh, just based on some of the songs I've been listening to while driving, thinking, hmm, might be fun to pick up that instrument again. The only thing is, where do I play it and when do I play it? because I don't know if my wife wants to hear me wailing away on a saxophone in the basement uh, <laughs> while she's trying to watch television or read a book or do any of her work. So, um, yeah, I definitely have an interest in it. Whether or not I'm going to follow through on it is not really completely up to me. We may have to re-explore the uh, soundproof <laughs> booth in your house again yes, for, the, exactly. uh, for the sake of that one. You're right. <laughs> Mike, thank you for this. You bet. That's Mike Ross. I want you to vote on the daily poll as well. At AMI Audio is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. You can send us emails, feedback at AMI.ca, feedback at AMI.ca, or give us phone calls, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Let's go back to Grace Scofield. Grace has the national weather update. Thanks, Dave. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We start off in St. John's, Newfoundland, where there's some showers ending this morning. Then it'll be mainly cloudy with 60% chance of showers or drizzle, but that will clear up late this afternoon. There's a high of 24 degrees. Oh, some fun little thunder well, sounds Well, look at here. that. There you, go. Got, you, got an extra, you got an extra sound bed we're, on the weather uh, there. We're going music list today, everybody. There you go. In Halifax, a mix of sun and cloud with 30% chance of showers early this morning and a high of 23 degrees. Over in Montreal, it is clearing this morning with a high of 30 degrees. In Ottawa, a mix of sun and cloud with 30% chance of showers this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm with a high of 29 degrees. In Toronto today, it's sunny this morning. Then a mix of sun and cloud with 30% chance of showers this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm this afternoon as well with a high of 29 degrees. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's cloudy with a 70% chance of showers this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm with a high of 24 degrees. Over in Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's cloudy with 30% chance of showers early this morning then a mix of sun and cloud with a high of 25 degrees. In Saskatoon, it's sunny today with a high of 30 degrees. Over in Calgary, Alberta, it's mainly sunny. There's a heat warning in effect with a high of 31 degrees. And in Edmonton, Alberta, it's mainly sunny with a high of 32 degrees. Today in Yellowknife, it's mainly sunny and the high is 25 degrees. In Vancouver, B.C., it's mainly cloudy with a 30% chance of showers in the morning and early in the afternoon with a risk of a thunderstorm, but that'll clear late in the afternoon. There's also a heat warning in effect and the high is 24 degrees. In Victoria, B.C., it's mainly cloudy with a 30% chance of showers in the morning and a risk of a thunderstorm. That will clear up by the late afternoon and the high is 22 degrees. 
And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. That was some very good acapella weather. I definitely considered giving you a little flavor, though. I thought about doing like a little jazz drum, like... Yeah, right? But I thought that might be distracting. A little beatboxing or something? I don't know about beatboxing. (laughs) I think that might count as cultural appropriation, so I can't do that anymore. Uh, Grace, thank you for this. That's Grace Scofield with your weather report. Coming up after the break, we will kick off the news panel. Michelle will be here. Joita will be here. We will discuss some of the road bumps that have encountered the rollout of the federal $10 a day childcare program. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Friday, which means it is news panel time. Let's welcome back into the show, Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hey, good morning, Joita. Good morning, Dave. And hello, Michelle. Hello, Dave and Joita. So let's jump right into our first story. And we're talking about the national child care rollout. Ontario is extending the deadline for child care operators to apply for the $10 a day program and standardizing the process in an attempt to get more providers to sign up. The deadline has been extended from September the 1st to November the 1st. Education Minister Stephen Lecce says it will allow more operators time to make decisions. Following the good advice of many child care operators themselves and workers uh, is to provide more time so that we can incentivize as many operators as possible to participate because the bottom line for the Premier and for our government is saving families money. Some operators said they want to sign up in order to issue rebates to parents but are hesitant about the implications to their business. And there's also issues for child care providers in the Northwest Territories, saying they are hopeful that more support is coming as the program rolls out the territory signed on to the $10 a day federal child care agreement last December. As a first step, it introduced a fee reduction subsidy to parents in April. Some providers are dealing with staff shortages and there is a lack of available space. Patricia Davidson is the chair of the NWT Early Childhood Association. Programs are having longer and longer wait lists, but no staff. I mean, we can't even think about extending spaces because we're barely able to staff the spaces we have. So it's, it's causing a huge dilemma. Davidson says she's optimistic support for childcare staff is coming, but she says if it doesn't happen soon, many early learning and childcare programs could close. Michelle, this is your topic. Why did it jump out to you? Well, A, we all know childcare is a big and pressing issue, so much so that this particular plan to have $10 a day childcare across the country was a real cornerstone of the Trudeau uh, platform last election. And something that I think he's really banking on as part of what will be considered his legacy whenever he ceases to be prime minister. It's a very ambitious plan. It's a, it's a complex one because every child care situation varies by tra- province and territory and sometimes even by municipality. So it's a, it is a bit of a get that, that the, these deals got inked in all 13 provinces and territories. But now we're seeing all these bumps in the road as it rolls out. Uh, the fact that it's happening in very different jurisdictions. Nova Scotia, Ontario, and Northwest Territories have wildly different needs and infrastructures. Mm-hmm. Uh, even some of the issues that they're facing are a little bit different just based on their local situations. Uh, speaks, I think, to the fact that this is a it, <laughs> perhaps even more complex than the already complex plan that we thought. Uh, but it is an important issue and one that's going to have a lot of direct bearing on parents across the country. So I, I, I thought we might be able to dig into it as we're starting to see 
the realities of the situation to kick in rather than just the political rhetoric. Joita, any surprises about these uh, early bumps in the road? No, I can't say that I'm all that surprised. Uh, when you roll out a new program, any new program, no matter how well you plan it out on paper, inevitably reality tends to be far more complicated. So some of these roadblocks aren't really all that surprising. I think Michelle touched on some of the points earlier, which is that uh, the context is very different province by province, indeed municipality by municipality. But I also think the other layer to this is, at least if you look at uh, Toronto or Ontario, there does seem a lot, uh, there does seem to be an appetite from the not-for-profit sector to buy into the program. And so it is possible that given more time, and that is the purpose of this extension from September 1st to November 1st in Ontario, more of the non-profit providers will in fact sign on. It would be interesting to explore why the for-profit, uh, not for pro uh, the, the childcare providers aren't really buying in to quite the same extent. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's because they want to continue to make money. But um, <laughs> there's a whole other conversation here. But there aren't really all that surprising because it feels like in the rollout of this plan, it's very ambitious. It's clearly a legacy piece uh, for the Trudeau government, but it really feels like they're trying to, oh, I don't know, run a marathon without doing any of the, you know, prep work before that, or they're papering over the gaps. We know for a very long time that across the country, they've said there's a shortage of spaces, there's a shortage of trained professionals, and the wages are in the sub-basement. So without addressing those key issues, you can't really bring $10 a day childcare to parents, however much you may want to and however badly it is needed, unless you look at some of those underlying factors. Joita, I, you said a lot there, and I think there's a ton to unpack. And a lot of this does have to do with the way in which providers may have been engaged in this, whether it's because they were very happy to be, you know, charging tens of thousands of dollars a year to have spaces available for parents and kids. Certainly in Ontario, that was the case. And certainly I've heard experiences in British Columbia that were certainly the case. But as you mentioned, yes, some of them were extremely profitable and wages for their employees were still very low. Where have we heard that before? Where, where, is, where has that become <laughs> yeah, a common right? theme? and so many things that we've talked about here. But Michelle, where do you think this left providers in the actual way this program was negotiated between the federal government and the provinces? Well, I think this is the really interesting thread here, and Joey has started to tug on it for us already. It does seem, and the message we're hearing and the issues we're seeing raised kind of back this up, it does seem like providers were largely left out of the crafting of the deal. And now that we're into the nitty-gritty of the implementation, we're starting to see those bumps in the road along those lines. And providers are saying, no, we weren't really consulted. We're concerned about being able to keep uh, covering our costs because obviously the pricing structure and the, the pricing model is going to change dramatically for them. Uh, Joey had talked about already about addressing issues like wages, which was it's a major problem. So all of these issues come together to suggest that perhaps providers didn't have the role in this that we talked about. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense from a strictly political perspective, from a planning perspective, it, that's another story. But politically, this was really positioned, and probably smartly so, as a huge win for parents and talking about targeting parental wallets, cutting costs that have been exorbitant in many jurisdictions for decades. Uh, that is smart political messaging, but political messaging is not the same as the reality on the ground. And now that we're here, we start to see those issues. And actually, one thing that's been nice to see sometimes is that this extension, along with some uh, in the weeds stuff about standards and standard agreements by municipality and a few other more technical things are among the things that childcare providers and operators were asking for from the province of Ontario specifically. And uh, this extension that Stephen Lecce announced earlier this week 
and along with some of the other rule changes, actually do address that. And some of the providers have come out and said, okay, this is great. The government actually did listen to what we were asking for this time. So that does increase the odds that the sign-up and the uptake for this is going to be a little bigger. Uh, but the some of the lack of buy-in might also stem from this, the fact that operators did not have the same presence in the uh, in the rollout for sure and possibly in the planning as well. You, you didn't use this word explicitly, but it does seem there is some uncertainty in the rollout of the program. And I'm sure for people whose livelihood depends on this, they're not particularly interested in signing up to something that's uncertain. So I'm curious, Joita, is this something that perhaps over time is going to have more providers jumping on board as they start seeing the actual operational success of a program? It's entirely possible. Um, I think um, especially if they can manage to iron out some of the creases in the rollout of this program, especially addressing the funding envelopes. I know in a lot of places like the Northwest Territories or Nova Scotia, uh, many providers are worried that they're just not going to get enough of a funding envelope to be able to promise those rebates to parents and promise to deliver on the $10 a day childcare while also paying a living wage to their employees. I think there's going to have to be some hard work to look at the wage side of the the issue. Uh, But also, I suspect that as Um, with a lot of supply and demand things, uh, once parents see that there is a good quality standardized $10 a day childcare option available, they will want to opt into that option, which may force at least, let's say, the for-profit providers to start to play ball. The concern that I have, and it kind of references back to the clip that we played off the top there, is are there still going to be enough spaces? And one of the caveats that I feel needs to be put in, because we didn't really see it covered in the news so far, but I was thinking about this last night, in the, to, the, to the point about consultation, we know that there are extenuatingly long wait lists, extensively long wait lists for uh, programs and supports for kids with disabilities. And I feel like in a lot of provinces, particularly in Ontario, consultation has been so surface level and or non-existent that I would be really concerned about the impact on parents of children with disabilities, whether that might be a population that inevitably falls through the cracks. So they're going to have to do a lot of work to make sure that nobody gets left behind. Yeah, that's uh, again a common theme. I think we're I think we're exploring some common themes here inside the specified story yeah. of consultation, yeah. exclusion of people with disabilities, low wages for workers, and how we get people involved. I I I agree with you completely, Joita, that once some of these spaces do become available and there becomes an actual market pressure, and parents are saying, "Wow, I do want to put my kid in this ten dollar a day program that exists," that will definitely change the equation. The, these for profit companies or private businesses are concerned about what opting in is going to do to their business, there may be a breaking point where it's actually what's the cost of opting out. And I think Mm -hmm. that's largely what's going to, I think that's what what will shift the sand. What do you think, Michelle? I completely agree with you. One thing I'm finding interesting, though, is where the resistance is coming from in terms of the buy-in. So using an Ontario as an example, for instance, in many, many rural jurisdictions, 100% of the child care providers have signed up already. It's in the cities that you're getting these pockets of resistance. And I think that speaks to where we're seeing it, uh, probably from the for-profit people where there's a lot more options perhaps than in rural settings who may be trying to weigh the cost. But I agree with you, Dave, that there, and, and Joey, that when the, like, there's... A, there's no way, I, I, there's no circumstance I can foresee in which parents aren't enthusiastic about this mm-hmm. and start to snap up the spots when they become available. 
so for those reasons alone, I suspect people are going to get on board. Um, and, and with these extensions, and if there is some greater clarity and some greater transparency, we might even see things in a slightly better shape than we're expecting at this point when, when things really do get going. Michelle, in your opening remarks, you mentioned legacy, and this already is being talked about as a Prime Minister Justin Trudeau legacy project, the $10 a day childcare that we've been talking about for decades. It seems like yeah. he, along with the uh, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, really pushed this over the finish line. And you were asking the question, does this potentially impact his legacy or the legacy of the program on the early road bumps that we're seeing? I would say not at all. I would say if the program ends up being a complete and total flop, that imp- that impacts the legacy. But I don't think you can start making uh, conversation. I don't think you can start making true analysis of a legacy project two months into the project. Joita, what do you think? <laughs> Yeah, it is. A, it's, it is definitely a legacy piece. I will grant that. But I think it is too early to say uh, how these initial road bumps will uh, help to ascertain the value of that legacy. It, it is just two months in roadblocks, as I said a few minutes ago, inevitable. You can't really get around that. It's going to happen in the best laid out programs. Reality creeps in. Um, what I think I'd be very interested to see from the government is follow through. So you know, uh, there was an. Uh, there have been. The government has said we're very happy that everyone's communicating and we want to address everybody's problems. Well, it doesn't cost anything to talk, but it does cost something to address the funding envelope and to maybe channel more money towards the program if that's what's needed. But um, and I said this about utilities uh, a few weeks ago, public uh, about the need for a public utility. Uh, so it will not surprise either of you when I come right out and say that I think we should also talk about creating a public sector option for childcare, because you're going to have those private sector companies of providers that are just going to come hell or high water, they're just going to want to opt out. And that's going to create a shortage of space for parents looking for that cheaper alternative. And so if you have a viable, good quality public sector childcare option, it will either force, as I said a few minutes ago, the private sector to play ball, or at least it will provide options for parents who are already struggling with long wait lists. So I would be very interested to see what kind of follow through comes from this. The other thing that I'd be very curious about is um, for a lot of parents, at least right now, if you want a low barrier, low cost option for daycare, you go to unregulated providers, you know, so somebody's house. And if you have, I think, three or four kids in Toronto, you don't need a license. And we very often in the media will hear the horror stories of about how things go badly awry in these unregulated and unlicensed daycare providers. My hope is that with bringing in this $10 a day option, it will either root out this underground unlicensed daycare option, or it will encourage these formerly unregulated providers to uh, sign up and provide daycare in a, in a regulated fashion if, if that is fi- viable. But you know, but there's a, a degree of math that's involved and numbers that are involved and barriers that need to be taken away. So that, so that and, and we haven't really talked about this. It's often women who are the providers of daycare. And you'll forgive me for stirring the pot so early in the morning or so early in the program. But I think part of the reason the consultation was so shoddy is because we were talking about women, especially women of color and immigrant women providers, and this perception that, well, daycare, daycare work isn't real actual work and they didn't need to be taken seriously so that's me with my hot my hot take for the morning <laughs> yeah that is a hot take for sure yeah, I, I, I don't know i don't know how substantiated that is but it's a hot take I for know. sure uh, i i just michelle i want to give you the opportunity on legacy here as well i mean mm-hmm. i will say oftentimes the, the stakes were lower but any rollout of these programs are going to road bumps remember the first six months of cannabis slash the first like year yeah, of exactly. cannabis rollout like it was it was a mess and that has been pretty much completely streamlined since then so you know sometimes these take times although again childcare, the stakes are 
were definitely higher than cannabis and you would probably want a better rollout on that front. But Michelle, legacy. <laughs> I, I, with all of you, I think early bumps are, are inevitable and I don't feel these were predictable per se because the exclusion or the, the lack of consultation with providers uh, or what we suspect is a lack of consultation with providers does stand to potentially cause a black eye for this program down the road if these things can't be straightened out. But it is really early days. There is time for things to be straightened out. We are already seeing provinces trying to play ball to rectify some of this. So I do think it's highly possible for this to happen. But the stakes are really high. And the fact that a key group was uh, not necessarily given the weight it needed at the consultation level does pose a bit of a risk to the program. Overall, though, I'd say it's a highly, highly ambitious one. And the fact that it has come this far already already is a bit of a win. So I think the legacy at this point is uh, probably still intact, but time will tell. Yeah, I would I'd, I'd say that if we revisited this, say, next September 1st or next November 1st, sort of a year beyond the official rollouts in a lot of places or the official starts in a lot of places, then we can really get a sense to see if the actual sands have shifted or if it's still a total mess. So that's, I Maybe think- we I, should do exactly that. Yeah, I almost, mm-hmm. I almost think we should put a marker in the calendar and revisit this yeah, one. Yeah, or, absolutely. you know, if, obviously if there's a major story that breaks during the year, we'll, we'll re-pick it up again. But I think to evaluate or even like start talking about real legacy stuff. That one's probably one that we need to put 12 to 18 months, uh, two years down the road. Or quite frankly, what another party takes over and if they just scrap the program, because that would be super politically popular. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like th- there's there's definitely some other political machinations that can play this down uh, down the road. Okay, guys, let's, let's leave. Let's not forget, though, that the Fed's hands are a bit limited as to what more they can do because they have a number of other quote-unquote legacy efforts that they have to get moving on, like the dental care program, like a pharma care program, and now they need the NDP's cooperation on side. Yeah. So I think it's going to now fall to the provinces to really straighten out what's left. Hmm, where have, Again, where have we heard that before? All these common <laughs> yeah, right? themes that have come up in the uh, first <laughs> segment of the news panel. Okay, guys, let's move on, because coming up next, we'll talk about the implications and issues surrounding CTV's dismissal of news anchor Lisa Laflamme. This is the Now News Panel on AMI. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown alongside Michelle McQuig and Joy Gupta. Let's address our next topic. Veteran news anchor Lisa Laflamme has been dismissed by CTV National News after 35 years. Laflamme says that she was blindsided by the decision. While it is crushing to be leaving CTV National News in a manner that is not my choice, please know reporting to you has truly been the greatest honor of my life and I thank you for always being there. Laflamme says that she was told in late June that Bell had made a business decision to end her contract. And just a bit of news coming across the wire this morning. Uh, Bell has publicly now said they regret the way they handled the uh, releasing of Lisa Laflamme. And they will have a third-party investigation into what happened around the newsroom. Joita, what aspects do you want to explore in this conversation? Well, it's been talked about a lot this week. I think it was unavoidable that we talk about it here on the panel we can always uh, you know, discuss uh, the many strands to the story and pull them together and pull them apart. There's been conversations about the independence of the newsroom and whether Bell executives were interfering in the newsroom and whether that conflict has resulted in her dismissal. Some really interesting revelations about whether sexism played a factor and more recently, whether ageism played a factor in her dismissal. And I would wonder, 
And I, I wonder this as a sort of, now that I'm getting a bit older as a woman, I would wonder if this dismissal has reverberations that go beyond CTV, go beyond the media, and whether this is a story that might in fact resonate with professional women, no matter where they work. So I'm almost not sure where to start there, whether you guys want to start with the isms or whether you want to start with the journalistic component of this conversation. But why don't we start with the sexism? Michelle, how do you think that sexism or ageism may have played a, may have played a part in this story? I have to tread very carefully here. Yeah, so um, do I, quite frankly. Yeah, it, but it certainly, the, the fact that there's so much discussion taking place uh, really speaks to, I think, how strong that perception runs in many circles. Um, those who might not know, I actually didn't really know until recently when chattering with some of my media friends. So Lisa Laflamme quite recently um, allowed her hair to go fully gray. Mm -hmm. And this was a thing that started around COVID. Uh, no, no one could get to their colorist at that point. Um, and apparently, by, according to people that I know, it looked really great. And, but it also, it not only emphasizes her gender, but it also emphasizes her age. And it's a pretty high profile move when you're sitting in an anchor's chair. This kind of thing has, has fueled the discussion. There have been allegations that people were not happy with this decision. Uh, sexism is always going to enter the conversation when you have something like this. And there's another dimension that I think is worth discussing. And that's allegations that people like to try to paper over a potential PR flub by enlisting people of color as a replacement. Mm -hmm. uh, Omar Sachadina is now about to take over the anchor's chair. And this should have been a really great moment for him, a very cool moment for the media landscape. Instead, now we have a scandal that has kind of gotten to that point now where I think we can call it a scandal that has harmed both a prominent successful female journalist and a prominent successful journalist of color. Not a great look for anybody. Joita, you raised it, ageism and sexism. Well, um, I think according to some of the reporting in Canada, Canada Land and the Globe and Mail, it, it does seem that there was some sort of tension in the newsroom. And we can sort of dig into the, in the independence of, of the newsroom at, at maybe at a later time. But it, 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 one gets the impression from reading some of that coverage that... And we lost Joita. Maybe struggled oh, with no, having Joita's a powerful back. woman in the room. Joita, Joita, we, mm -hmm. we, we had a blip there uh, you, with your technology. Yeah. You've, you've got to go, oh, go rewind yourself yeah. 15 seconds. So, yeah, I'll rewind 15 seconds. So I think uh, if you look at some of the coverage coming out of Canada land and more recently uh, the Globe and Mail, um, according to those sources, there was, there was some conflict in... Uh, the newsroom over some editorial decisions. I think a lot of it came down to money and, and the way that budgets were being allocated. And we can sort of dig into that question about editorial independence in maybe a few minutes. But the reporting does, or at least from Canada land, does sort of give you the impression that um, certain Bell executives may have been surprised uh, or may have felt threatened by having a powerful woman in the room. Lisa Laflamme was in many respects, um, a very powerful woman at CTV, a celebrated anchor, a veteran journalist, someone who'd really uh, been there and uh, been on the front lines and has a, a, a very effective track record. And I want to pick up on that point about the gray hair. How many um, men are allowed to go gray? Um, mm -hmm. How many men are told that their gray hair makes them look distinguished? Uh, apparently, at one point, it was 
there was a question about whose decision it was to allow Lisa Laflamme's hair to go gray, because apparently that was showing up as a purplish tinted uh, under the studio light. Um, so, but but really, whose business is it? If you if you are a, a a person and you decide to go gray because you know maybe you can't visit your your hairstylist or maybe you just are sick of coloring your hair, which for anyone who's ever had to color their hair is a nuisance because once you start, you can never you can never stop. And, and it's so, expensive. And it's expensive. Uh, so really, whose business is it? I, I think that um, one struggles as a journalist to report on these things in an, in an objective fashion. But if you were to ask me whether people with disabilities fare worse than able-bodied people, I would say uh, objectivity notwithstanding that ableism is real, and that is true. And I will also say, you know, as someone who has self-identified as a feminist for uh, just about the entirety of my adult life, that I think uh, although women have made tremendous strides in every walk of life, including holding powerful positions in the media, I will go out on a limb and say that sexism continues to be a factor for women. And we see that play out in ways both big and small, whether it is in the way that a prominent news anchor was let go. If, if CTV is saying that they are now regretting it, I wonder how much of that regret is stemming from the backlash rather than the way in which they unceremoniously dumped someone who'd worked there for 35 years. Um, uh, or in ways that are small, like we talked about during the pandemic, where so many women juggled with childcare and, and remaining productive in their workplaces. So I think this is a story where it does shine a light on some of the challenges faced by women in the workplace. I want to come back to some of the reporting that was done this week in Canada Land and the Globe and Mail, specifically Canada Land, was the first one out with a lot of this reporting. And it was quite solid, especially in regards to some of the clashing that was existing between Lisa Laflamme and some of the executives uh, and not necessarily in CTV, but certainly inside uh, CTV National News. There was some clashing with some new executives who were put in place around some funding, uh, budgeting for coverage of the war in Ukraine, for the Queen's Jubilee, and a couple of other stories that, uh, that, 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 that the news department really wanted to uh, push, push for. And some of the executives were saying, nah, not, not so much. I, I do wonder how much of that is just sort of the modern trend of cost cutting in newsrooms, generally speaking, trying to do more with less, having video journalists do their own editing, editing and shooting on location, not sending entire crews out to do, to do kind of shooting. So I wonder if, that's, if there's some trend here that actually has more to do with ne not necessarily interference in the mm -hmm. journalism, but some stylistic choices that do indeed trickle down to editorial. Uh, Michelle, what do you make of some of those perceptions? Uh, yeah. Um, again, I, I, I need to proceed with some care here, but I, I, I think you raise a very valid point, Dave, by pointing out that these that kind of push and pull and these sorts of conversations are far from unique to the CTV newsroom. I would argue that they're going on in every newsroom, every North American newsroom, even at, to some degree. Yes, um, I agree. So that where things get trickier and where I'm hesitant to, to put a full trust in, in more hearsay-based reporting is where the individual dynamics come into play because it's it's just so hard to know exactly what's going on here without truly knowing the parties involved. But there are some real struggles to be had there. That said, the problem now is that the perception is out there, that there's some interference in the newsroom, and that is that stands to do some potential damage to the brand 
And it certainly isn't going to do a whole lot to shore up flagging trust in the media more generally among the public. And that troubles me. Joey, to some folks mm-hmm. call it interference. I would say it's more of an editorial influence. Either way, certainly it's uh, the executive, the executive level having an impact on the way news is brought to the viewer. How may that in- impact the perception of the news? So it's a really interesting question because I think um, on the one hand, in fairness to uh, CTV news, I haven't actually heard of any allegations of straight up interference and you know, things like, oh, we want you to cover this political party more or, you know, you know, provide a more favorable outlook on the liberals versus the conservatives or yeah. we want you to take a certain political stance. You haven't actually heard that. What you've heard is a lot of squabbling about money. We don't want to send a team to cover the Queen's Jubilee. We can cover it from Toronto. So really, it does come down to a lot of that cost cutting. And I feel like um, this is a good place to bring in uh, Noam Chomsky and his book, Manufacturing Consent, which uh, if you read, in, and I'm going to do a really bad job of summarizing it. So if anyone else in the audience has read the book and you want to call me out on my bad summary, please do. But the basic idea is that corporate media exists to... Uh, serve its investors and shareholders and that it's not really looking out for public interest. And so if you if you are a a Noam Chomsky fan, you have read manufacturing consent. This is the kind of story that's going to get you shaking your head where you'll say there you see you see it it does show you about how uh, editorial decisions are are based less on what the news is and what journal and and less on journalistic standards uh, and more on cost cutting and making money from investors. However, the average person I regret to say, uh, maybe isn't as engaged with Noam Chomsky and has maybe not read Manufacturing Consent. I think what is more damaging in this situation is a couple of things. I think the real scourge uh, is that there's a couple of a, a broader trends that are taking place here. I think even bearing in mind that when Lisa Flam was at the head of CTV's national news program, the ratings were very good and they have continued to be very good. Uh, but even so, viewership of the traditional news has been on the steady on, on a steady decline for the last 10 years. Why? Because everyone's getting their news from social media. So I don't think a lot of people are going to look at this necessarily and say, oh, this really strains the credibility of CTV nightly news or traditional news. I think the much bigger uh, the much bigger problem is the problem that has existed that we have talked about ad nauseum on this panel, which is social media and the impact of social media and, and people getting their news news from social media and maybe not checking those sources as being critical. I, I, incredible. I think that's the real problem. Uh, what I want to pick up on is what Michelle said about um, about the, the diversity chess that took place, where you, you sort of dismiss a high profile, uh, maybe in, in this case a white woman, and you bring in a person of color and to, to fill that role. And so what what should have been a, a celebratory moment gets really tainted. And so the diversity chess in this situation is really unfortunate. And um, I think that the scandal is probably going to hurt viewers. I've seen a lot of people say they're not going to watch CTV news anymore. I'm going to watch something else. Well, they might end up losing a few viewers over it. But if they think that by bringing in a different anchor, whomever that person may be, they can reverse the trend or the attrition of viewers from traditional media, I think they're barking up the wrong tree. Let's uh, move on from this subject before one of us gets in trouble. So coming up next, we look at some of the new language data released by Statistics Canada. This is the Now News Panel on AMI.
Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. We've got one more topic for you. Statistics Canada. I always struggle with that one. Statistics Canada. I don't know why. Says the proportion of Canadians who speak predominantly French at home has decreased in nearly all the provinces and territories, including Quebec. The only one where it's gone up is the Yukon. The agencies, Eric Caron, Malefon, says the 2021 census data shows English was the first official language spoken by three out of four Canadians, and that's an increase since 2016. In contrast, the proportion of Canadian with French as first official language spoken uh, decreased from 22.2% in 2016 to 21.4% in 2021. He also says the number and proportion of Canadians whose first official language in English has been rising since 1971. A few more notes from the data. The data shows a slight decrease in the number of people who speak Indigenous languages. And the 2021 census also shows that 4.6 million Canadians predominantly speak a language other than English or French at home. Here once again is Eric caron Benanfort saying the proportion of Canadians who speak a non-official language at home has also been increasing for decades. In 2021... One in eight Canadians predominantly spoke at home a language other than English or French, which represents an increase since uh, the last census, and it's increasing um, over, over the decades. Language is often seen as one of the things that makes Canada a cultural tapestry. Michelle, do you find these findings affirm that? I definitely do. And I find them very interesting on a number of levels. But yeah, this Canada has a reputation of allowing many different cultures to to coexist and, and, and thrive in, in their own ways. And I think the census is going to be more fodder for that reputation, frankly. Um, there are whole other political angles around perceived downsides of that. Uh, this is not an issue that gets unanimous praise and, and excitement, but I definitely think that this will speak to Canada's reputation as a place that welcomes people of all cultures and allows them to sort of keep living their lives and preserving those cultures and languages. Juida, I'm sure geography plays into this quite a bit, but spending some time walking around downtown Toronto or downtown Vancouver or downtown Calgary or downtown Montreal would certainly affirm that anecdotally, but do you find these findings affirm the nature by which language can be part of the Canadian cultural tapestry? Yes, I think so, 100%, as you said. Certainly, that is more evident in places like downtown Toronto or Vancouver than maybe other parts of the country, but it is clear that, at least if you look at the census data, that many more Canadians are reporting being bilingual, even trilingual, and not just bilingual in French and English, but bilingual in, in languages other than French and English, which is really exciting for me. As an uh, as someone from an immigrant family, I know there's a lot of head shaking that goes on about, you know, second generation uh, kids not being able to speak the languages uh, and speak their quote-unquote mother tongues, uh, being able to speak the, the languages that their parents spoke at home. So this is a very much an affirmation of the fact that um, Canada is in some respects very multilingual, but of course, um, I, I, I was especially happy to see that there was a spike in South Asian languages. I won't, I won't deny that. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, no, I think there are some downsides, and I'm sure we can dig into it. But certainly, it it does it does affirm the sense that if you uh, speak a language other than English and French, you are probably in a really good position to at least in your private lives continue to speak that language. There, uh, there. 
is, of course, some blowback in one of the provinces where you're finding that is Quebec. Uh, one of the uh, people who represents the president of the Société Nationale de Québec à Laval, uh, Jean Desautels, uh, came out yesterday and basically said this is another example of how the French language is threatened or under threat by other cultures and languages in the country, which I suppose is something of a predictable result. Guys, this is kind of a Captain Obvious question, so let's kind of keep our responses to 30 seconds or less. But, Michelle, how do you see this potentially playing out on the campaign trail in Quebec over the next two months? Oh, my. This is going to be grist for the mill for uh, Francois Legault as he seeks re-election. That, uh, that vote's coming on October 3rd. That party has faced a ton of controversy over Bill 21, a very controversial language law that we've discussed at length here on the panel. Uh, this, I'm sure, is going to give him all kinds of fodder to keep touting his party's path forward and, and what he will probably frame as success with the passage of Bill 21. And I strongly suspect that language and French in particular is probably going to be, if not the dominant, at least one of the dominant issues of the campaign. Joita, I like the expression Michelle used there, grist for the mill. I, I feel like this is also going to play out on the campaign trail very significantly over the next two months. What do you think? I think Michelle took the words from my mouth is what I think. Uh, no, I completely agree with <laughs> We've done it again. <laughs> we had a little bit of a, a mind melt going on there. But no, definitely this is a, a gift to Francois Legault and the ADQ ahead of the campaign. And it's really going to feed into those fear that the French language is on the decline. And this will certainly become an issue moving forward in the campaign. So uh, what I would be interested in, though, just bear in mind, this is uh, about the use of French in people's private lives. So there is data forthcoming about using French in the workplace. And one of the things that the language bill uh, does, in addition to sort of putting a lot of pressure on immigrants to learn French within six months, I think we talked about this, uh, is also sort of require more and more businesses to use French in Quebec as the uh, the business language of the the, mm -hmm. the primary, so that yeah. really primary communication, the primary yeah. language. I'd be very interested to see when that other data comes out about use of French in the workplace, uh, about how that actually feeds into or takes away from the campaign. I, I want it coming out though is after the election. Oh well, there you go. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you okay, have well, a clear well, runway. Well, there we go. Uh, lots, <laughs> lots of wiggle room on that one. Okay, guys, we have about two minutes and thirty seconds left here, and I kind of want to end on some positivities in regards to a major takeaway from this data because I do think it's kind of awesome. It speaks to many of my experiences growing up in Montreal, where most of my friends' households spoke non-official languages primarily. You'd think I might have picked up some Greek, Italian, or Hindi along the way. But I think it's kind of I think it's kind of incredible. And I think it does speak to almost an older perception we had of Canada of maybe 150 years ago, when so many cities had great thriving cultural sectors that could have been Greeks or Italians or Irish. I know Irish folks speak English, but spend time in an Irish household and it's a totally different language. Um, but Michelle, kind of a big takeaway in regards to, is, again, I know I'm coming back to sort of the tapestry question, but sort of a big takeaway here from, from some of this, from some of this data. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it, it speaks a lot to, to, I think, Canada's identity. This is really going to do a lot to shore up a lot of common perceptions of Canada as, as not only a welcoming place, but one with two official languages. It's worth noting. I mean, the fact that we have two official languages and one of them is spoken in 21 or so percent of, of, of households, that's still pretty significant. So French still has a strong place here. Uh, the decline is a bit troubling given the fact that it is a it is one of the official languages. I would love to see more pushes towards multilingualism in light of the society we live in. I hope that that kind of 
trend catches on. I know I personally feel very lucky that I can speak both English and French, but I wish I spoke more. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. not just, just because like my interest in that is largely just because I think it'd be cool. But for a lot of people, I think it would be a real edge to navigate Canadian society to have many languages in the arsenal. It's something that struck me a lot since I moved to, uh, especially since I moved to Toronto, that I wish I had maybe some Eastern European languages or Spanish available to me with the mm-hmm. number of people I meet. Uh, Joita, you got 30 seconds here, but I mean, you have 30 seconds in regards to your closing thought on this. Well, I think it's a, there are some important takeaways. Remember the number of French users is actually, uh, the French speakers has actually increased, but it has gone down proportionately be, uh, because the number of people speaking languages others, uh, other than English and French has gone up. So I think it's very positive. It shows that Canada is very multilingual. What I would like to see is greater opportunities for education in languages other than English and French. Right now you have French immersion, and of course you can get an English language education in Ontario or in other provinces, but it would be really nice to be able to learn to speak other languages and read them right there as well. Yeah, do it Norway style. Got to graduate with three languages when you graduate from a Norwegian high school. Joita, thank you for this. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Michelle, you have a great weekend as well. We'll talk to you on Monday. Sure will. Have a good one, guys. Joita Gupta is the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Mike Ross will be here with the regional news update after the break. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-audio, AMI-tv, AMI.ca, and the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. It's Friday, August the 19th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Michael McNeely reviews the sci-fi romance drama, Little Fish. And Mary Mamaliti will drop by to chat about the new season of Dish with Mary. It's season two, and do we have a dish for you? There is a box just to the left of me with some stuff inside that Mary and I are going to unbox together, and then you're going to have a chance to win it. That lowers the value of the stuff or increases the value of the stuff, but I will indeed have my hands on it. I mean, if you win, you can email me and be like, hey, Dave, lick that for me, and I will indeed lick it for you. Let's bring in Mike Ross for the regional news update. I don't even know what to make with that last statement. So for the leave it alone. for the hardcore super fans, the stalker yeah, fans. I, yeah, that's right. I've only had one stalker in my career, and I bet you he'll enter for this. Oh boy! Well, good luck, whatever his name is. Uh, let's go to British Columbia, Dave. That's where we're starting your regional news today. The BC Nurses Union says temporary closures at two emergency departments in the southern interior have put added pressure on Cranbrook's East Kootenay Region Hospital. That's the largest in the region. Union Vice President Adrian Gear says nurses working in the hospital's ICU say it's not unusual for the unit to be operating well over 100% capacity, while staffing levels are sometimes as low as 50%. Gear says patient care throughout the Kootenays is suffering because the B.C. government does not have a strategy to recruit and retain nurses there. The union says the province's own numbers show more than 26,000 nurses will be needed by 2031, while Statistics Canada's latest data shows a vacancy rate of more than 4,000 nurses. To the prairies, the Saskatchewan government says any teacher named in a proposed multi-million dollar class action lawsuit alleging physical and verbal abuse against students by staff at the Legacy Christian Academy will not be teaching this school year. The NDP opposition had called on the province to take the action while also asking for an investigation by Saskatchewan's children and youth advocate. 
Earlier this month, the province appointed administrators to oversee three schools that employ people named in the lawsuit, including Legacy Christian Academy in Saskatoon. Former Legacy student Stephanie Hutchinson says some private schools are being run by unqualified people who aren't registered with any regulatory body. Manitoba's plan to incrementally increase its minimum wage to $15 an hour by October 2023 is being criticized by both labour and business groups. The province says the rate will increase to $13.50 an hour in October, up from $11.95. It will then be boosted to $14.15 next April, before reaching $15 by October 2023. Manitoba Federation of Labour President Kevin Rebeck says the increase is not enough and remains the second lowest in the country. Lauren Remillard, president of the Winnipeg Chamber of Commerce, says the increase will have a significant effect on small businesses. To Ontario, and a group with suspected ties to the so-called Freedom Convoy says it has been threatened with eviction from a building in Ottawa. The organization calling itself the United People of Canada set up shop in a deconsecrated church this summer as part of a conditional offer to buy the space. Neighbours have protested the group's presence in the community. The group claims to have no connection to the protest that denounced COVID-19 restrictions and the Trudeau government in February, though several members of its board have ties to the Freedom Convoy movement. And to the Atlantic region, Nova Scotia's opposition Liberals are accusing the governing Tories of dragging their feet on key climate change policy. Former Liberal leader Ian Rankin issued a statement yesterday accusing Premier Tim Houston of failing to produce a carbon pricing plan with just two weeks left before Ottawa's deadline. The province's current cap-and-trade agreement expires at the end of this year, which means a new plan must be submitted by September. Environment Minister Tim Holman says the province is still talking to the federal government. And those are your top regional headlines going coast to coast across the country. Thank you for this, Mike. Stay right there, though, because you also have our big business story of the day. Some interesting data dropping about viewership habits when it comes to streaming versus broadcast versus cable in the United States. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this these sort of numbers before, and it kind of actually surprised me that this is a first. Uh, the time viewers spent watching streaming services like Netflix and Hulu in the United States outpaced broadcast and cable television networks in July for the first month ever. That kind of surprised me, mm, Dave. Mm. I thought that this might have happened at some point point during the pandemic. Uh, but it, all it was was the numbers were creeping up and up and up. And finally, now it finally surpassed it. Not a huge margin as far as percentage points go. The Nielsen Company says viewers spent 35% of their time with streamers, 34% on cable networks, and 22% watching broadcast television last month. So 35 to 34% doesn't really represent a huge percentage point. But when you actually factor in what that represents in number of viewers, you can imagine you extrapolate mm-hmm, that into some mm-hmm. millions of viewers. Uh, video on demand or DVD playback accounted for pretty much the balance of the remaining time. But this one surprised me, Dave, that it's taken sort of this long yeah. for streamers to actually surpass 
the, the certainly the, the, the cable. Uh, and it, it doesn't surprise me that it uh, has surpassed broadcast television because a lot of people have made that switch to watching their broadcast TV shows on streaming services. Ah, okay, I'm, Mike, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I wanted to pick up on that as I looked at the pie charts. Because even mm-hmm. when we're talking about things like Hulu or ESPN+, Plus, which would be seen as streamers, yep. that content is still largely packaged in with your broadcast or cable package. So I do find it's interesting as I kind of put the broadcast and cable together, some of that does end up trickling into the streaming number where maybe it's that the viewership habit where they watched it has changed, yeah. but they're still funneling money into those big media companies. Yeah, agreed. Because I think there are a lot of people who who have made a switch to their habits, and maybe they enjoy watching one of the Chicago shows or mm-hmm. you know their mm-hmm. favorite their favorite medical drama or cop show. But rather than watching it on their television, they're watching it through a streaming service. And why do people do that? Because they hate commercials. Yeah. They hate <laughs> they hate that appointment viewing. They want to be able to watch it when they want to watch yeah. it on their yeah. own schedule. And and you know there was a time when PBRs came in where suddenly that allowed people that gave people that convenience of not having to sit there on Thursday night at nine o'clock and sit through an hour of television. Now they were able to tape their shows, skip the commercials, and watch it anytime. And suddenly that one hour investment became about 43 minutes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was the first step to that convenience. With streaming, it just goes to another level where you can watch it anywhere, you know, take it with you on your vacation, you know, catch up on a few shows while you're on vacation. Um, so that, that convenience, you're right, has really shifted people's habits. And I think you're right. The the, the network programming is still kind of just sort of trickling into that streamer yeah. number. And sometimes it's even parallel. Like, for example, I don't have a TV in my bedroom. But when you have a right. subscription to uh, Sportsnet or TSN, you then get access to their online streaming platform as well. Right. Like, if you have the cable channel, you do get access to the streaming platform. So there are plenty of nights where I will end up watching a game in bed on my tablet, but it's because sure. I'm already a subscriber to the channel. So, again, yeah. the, the habit isn't, like, the habit and the way and the content are, are sometimes like it, it's tough to separate the habit and the content from and actually sort of say what that is precisely in that pie. Yeah, this this is not a commentary on what people are watching. It's how it's they're really watching. A commentary it. Yeah. how they're watching. Yeah. It. And I think to, to your point, uh, I'm a Bell subscriber, so I have Bell five at home, but that gives me access to their app. So when I'm at uh, Scotiabank Arena and I've got three hours before a hockey game and there's just not a lot happening, I flip on the app and I'm watching shows that I recorded or I'm watching something on demand. So I'm watching it through a streamer, but it's still broadcast television that I'm watching. It's just how I've decided to watch it based on the convenience of having it. And I will say this, years ago when, when those apps and streaming of television shows on phones first happened, I was, you know, old man yelling at the cloud saying, who wants to watch TV on this little (laughs) tiny screen? I like my big TV. And just like almost every convenience and technological change that has happened along the way, I converted. Yeah. 
we we develop these patterns. It, sometimes yeah. it matters. Like I would say, watching a football game on my phone is still not quite as pleasurable as even my tablet or my TV. But uh, it happens. It happens from time hey, to time. Man. A little red zone on the phone, you know? Why not? When, when when I'm working a hockey game, but the Bills are playing, it's got to be on down here. Got to be on down here. But I have to keep it quiet because my my friend, organist Jimmy Holmes, who's a big Bills fan, and he records the okay. game and watches yeah. it at home. No spoilers. So I have to be, yeah, I, I got to be really quiet and keep it. not yeah. let him see my screen. <laughs> okay, Mike, while we're talking about sports, let's actually play the imaging and begin the sports yeah. chat. So three dominoes fell on the hockey world yesterday. Let's start with Nazem Kadri, Kadri inking a seven-year, seven million dollar deal in Calgary. That that's good news for him. And quite frankly, Mike, what a what a save from Calgary here, who started the summer on just a disastrous note. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, number one, I'm happy for Nas. Um, you know, he was one of my favorites when he was with the Maple Leafs. Um, he, he's he's just a likable guy on the ice, though experienced some pretty frustrating moments with the Maple Leafs, you know, at a time when we needed him most in the playoffs, he would go away, he'd be suspended. And, and, and it was really frustrating. It was tough. So there, there wasn't anyone I was happier for than, than Nazem Kadri to raise the Stanley cup last year, but even more impressive than him getting his payday, because I think he he's earned it is you're right. The Calgary flames really, making chicken salad out of chicken poop. Mm -hmm. I mean, your two top players say, I want out. Johnny Gaudreau goes, Matthew Kachuk leaves, and, and, you know, Kachuk was traded, obviously, but he he made it clear to them that he was going the same route as Johnny Gaudreau and Calgary and Brad Treliving, their GM said, well, we need to we need to get something in return. Yeah, we yeah. can't let another star player walk for nothing. So the fact that uh, Treliving made the deal he did and getting Jonathan Huberto and Mackenzie Weger, among other things, uh, with draft picks coming as well, that was an impressive deal in itself. But in in order to then ship out Sean Monahan and bring in Kadri, I mean, everybody talked about a whole bunch of teams that were jockeying for Kadri, but they needed to make another move mm -hmm. to make the mm -hmm. numbers fit. And that's the biggest thing right now. So many teams have already committed their dollars that the only way to make something else happen is through trades to open up cap space. So that's why a trade like Monaghan from Calgary yesterday to Montreal for quote unquote future considerations. <laughs> we haven't heard that term as frequently as we do in the hockey world now for years. That used to be a regular thing. I'll trade, you know, th this team trades this player for futures. Like and that some was cash. just some future considerations and, some cash. and cash. Cash considerations. Yeah. You heard that all the time in hockey, baseball, whatever. Now it's making a bit of a resurgence in hockey. And I'm going to be curious to see just where, um, where the narrative of owners goes in the next round of collective bargaining talks in the NHL, mm -hmm. because, because, you know, there's always talk about this side or that side trying to circumvent the, the CBA in this case, just trading for futures to open up space to, to purchase a player or offer a contract kind of makes me feel a little bit like, eh, I kind of feel like, no, if you're going to make a deal to open up cap space, you need to make a deal. Something has to go yeah. the other way. Even if it's a seventh round, even if just, it's a seventh round pick, right? Even if it's just something tangible. Because otherwise, to me, it feels like the the, the early days of the 
uh, salary cap in the NHL where I will just bury this guy in the American League. His contract goes away and we got cap space again. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, no, wait a minute. You, you, you can't just wipe, you know, seven, eight million dollars a year off your cap for futures. Yeah. Like, that just feels yeah. weird to me. So I, I, I look at that and I say, I'm, I'll be curious to see what happens there, but happy for Nazem Kadri and time. really happy uh, to see, you know, for Calgary Flames fans, because that city was just took gut punch after gut punch. So yeah. they're, they're getting, I think they're getting a pretty, a pretty good Calgary flame type. Player that's right. In, in that's right. Whether they're better or not next year, they're at least going to be competitive. And that's what the, yep. that's what the organization needed to do. And they did a really nice job. Mike, you referenced a second domino to make the Nazem Kadri trade happen. Calgary traded Sean Monaghan, former first-round pick, and a first-round pick to Montreal for future considerations so Montreal could absorb that money. Monaghan coming off two hip surgeries in the last three years. Probably not going to be ready for the start of the season, but he should be ready at some point during the season. For me, for Montreal, that's just a smart smart piece of business. You get a first-round pick, and you get a player who might be able to contribute for a few months and maybe even be another trade asset closer to the trade deadline. That's what a rebuilding team can do. Just a smart move for Montreal. Yeah, let's face it. The Montreal Canadiens have been criticized heavily over the last, say, seven to eight years about their their scouting, about their their drafts. And to me, when you can put a first round pick in the bank, that's that's a great move. Yep. Anything from a first to a third rounder is a smart pick, is, mm-hmm. is a smart addition to the cupboard. Uh, and, and as far as adding Monahan, it's just another sort of depth piece. This is a guy who who can score. And last year, obviously, took a little bit of a step back, but he's been dealing with injuries. We'll see where that leads. But this this is not Montreal swinging for the fences no, and signing a no. guy who's a has-been, hoping he will be again. This is a Montreal team, and, and, and Kent Hughes, their GM, making a deal for a guy. They know what he can do. They know where he fits in. And you bank that first round pick at That's the same right. time. It's a smart deal. Yeah, they're, they're working really hard on cleaning, cleaning up their salary cap here in the they next are, couple yeah. of years as they go through something of a rebuild. And the last yeah. domino to fall, Mike, is that to make that Monaghan deal happen for Montreal, it looks like Carey Price, their longtime starting goaltender, is going to be starting the season on long-term injured reserve, and he may be done. That wasn't explicitly yeah. said yesterday, but that's a lot of the speculation that we're probably not going to see Carey Price this year. We may not see him again after a series of knee injuries and groin injuries have really hampered him for almost 10 years now. Pretty much since 2013, he's been dealing with chronic lower body injuries. It's It's a bummer. I've been really hard on Carey Price during his career, but he's someone who's going to be missed in a big, big way if this is indeed uh, the swan song for Carey Price. Yeah, so let me just start with uh, bringing it sort of full circle on our talk about the circumvention of the cap. The long-term injured reserve is something that will be looked at in the next round of collective bargaining because there are these accusations of teams that you know you can't bury a contract in the minors but maybe with the right medical advice, you can bury it on LTIR. So with Carey Price, and I'm not saying that's what Montreal is doing, but that is what other teams have accused teams in the oh, NHL certainly, of doing. certainly, certainly, With yes. Montreal, this is major cap relief. You're talking $10.5 million a season in cap relief on Carey Price. So that allows you to do a lot of business disappointing <coughs> excuse me for Carey Price because you're right I mean I go just think back to the days of the the debate Halak 
or Price. Oh. <laughs> Price or Halak, right? Uh, Halak's, Halak's going to finish his career with more wins, more starts, and uh, and more shutouts yeah. than Carey Price. It's wild. Yeah, so people who pick Carey Price came out on the, the right end of that conversation. What's kind of interesting to me, Montreal's, uh, when we talk about the drafting, Montreal's drafted one goalie every year for the last four years. I am not that familiar with their pipeline as far as the guys they have and what the future holds for goaltending for Montreal. I do know that right now it's Jake Allen and Sam Motombo. Oh boy. Yee, <laughs> boy, is that a drop off from Carey Price? And, and and listen, Jake Allen at one point, it, it was the Jake Allen or Jordan Bennington conversation. St. Louis went with Bennington, turned out to be the right, yeah, the right uh, sure. decision. With Jake Allen, it almost feels like he's that stereotypical um, NHL reclamation project. We're going to get him, and he's going to be great with us. We'll see. I, 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 I mean, it hasn't it hasn't happened yet. I don't think it happens uh, with these guys. Montreal, I think, still has uh, work to do. Oh yeah, let's say it's in, a in two to three, it's a two to three year project in Montreal. Yeah. there's no doubt about yeah. it. And I don't, I, and I don't know enough about the guys that are in their system, the guys that they've drafted, the guys that they've signed that got playing in the minors. But you, they don't have Carey Price no, waiting in no. the wings, and that's so you add whatever you want to add over the last couple of years. That's great. But the one of the huge, huge advantages that Montreal has had over many other teams, where they've been able to have weaker lineups overall, weaker defenses overall than a lot of teams, they had Carey Price in net. Yeah. Now they don't. And so as much as they've added up front and, and some offensive uh, firepower, if you will, it's still going to be tough sledding, I think, for the Canadians, uh, given the fact that they don't have Carey Price yeah. in net. Not, not, there are very few teams that have a guy like Carey Price in net anyway, but they may have somebody who's better than Jake Allen or Sam Otombo. And so that means tough sledding. Yeah. Caden Primo, there's high hopes, but still that's a big question. You're right. Yeah. Uh, Mike, we've only got a minute left here. We got to get out of here, but I will say that I think it also speaks to Carey Price potentially being one of those last guys of sort of the 60 game a year workhorse goalies. We've seen Tuka Rask go away in the last year, Henrik Lundqvist in the last two years, Carey Price now, even Freddie Anderson is someone who was yeah. one of those workhorse goalies and his body is already catching up on him too. I just think we're probably past the era of the 60-game-a-year goaltender in the NHL. Well, because there's so much hockey being played. And right now, Dave, it's going to be very interesting because you had the bubble, the shortened season, a whole bunch of games packed into an Olympic year. There's a ton of hockey being played. And you're even seeing it at the World Juniors where you see teams that normally are powerhouse teams Suddenly, eh, there are a few holes in their yeah, defense. A few of and our kids are the, staying the, home. <laughs> some of the and and some of these teams that have that are usually you know the, the 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 basement dwellers and the doormats of these tournaments have had a little bit more success. Why? I think because the North American players have played so much hockey in the last two calendar years, including summer hockey, that it's catching up to them. So it'll be interesting, I think, to watch the hockey world over the next couple of years and see how the last two pandemic years and the amount of hockey they played in a very condensed period is going to have an impact on their bodies and thus on their performances at all levels of hockey. Absolutely. That's a great observation to end your week on, Mike. Thank you for this. We'll talk to you next week. Sounds good. Thanks, Dave. That's Mike Ross. He's at the AMI Sports Desk. If you want to keep the sports conversation going today at 4 p.m. Eastern time on the Neutral Zone, Brock Richardson. 
and the crew will speak with para-kayaker Brianna Hennessy about her recent success at the World Championships. That's 4 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Grace Caulfield is at the AMI Weather Desk. Thanks, Dave. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. In this hour, we start off in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where there's a few showers ending this morning. Then it will be mainly cloudy, with a few showers beginning this afternoon, with a high of 23 degrees. In Charlottetown today, there's some showers, and the high is 23 degrees. Over in St. John, some showers ending this morning, then a mix of sun and cloud, with 30% chance of showers late this afternoon, and a high of 23 degrees. In Quebec City today, a mix of sun and cloud with 30% chance of showers and a high of 26 degrees. In Toronto, it's sunny this morning, then a mix of sun and cloud with 30% chance of showers this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm this afternoon as well. The high is 29 degrees. In Sault Ste. Marie, it's mainly cloudy with a 40% chance of showers this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm. The high is 27 degrees. Over in Brandon, Manitoba, a mix of sun and cloud today, with a high of 26 degrees. In Regina, it's sunny today, and the high is 28 degrees. Over in Lethbridge, Alberta, it's sunny, and there's a heat warning in effect, with a high of 33 degrees. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's mainly sunny today, there's also a heat warning in effect, and the high is 30 degrees. In Whitehorse, it's clearing up later this morning, and the high will be 20 degrees. In Kelowna, BC, it's mainly cloudy, with a 30% chance of showers this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm. There is a heat warning in effect, and the high is 33 degrees. In Vancouver, BC, it's mainly cloudy, with a 30% chance of showers in the morning and early in the afternoon, with a risk of a thunderstorm, but that will clear up by late this afternoon. There is a heat warning in effect, and the high is 24 degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Grace. Coming up next, Michael McNeely reviews the sci-fi romance drama Little Fish. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's a Friday edition of AMI at the Movies with entertainment critic Michael McNeely. Today, Michael is reviewing the sci-fi romance drama Little Fish that came out in 2021. It's a lot of labels for a film. That's a lot of genre blending sci-fi romance drama. And Michael's here from Kingston, Ontario. Hey, good morning, Michael. Good morning, and you know, Dave, I am a film critic, lawyer, high school teacher, private detective, and so forth, so that's why I have a little sympathy for this uh, sci-fi romance drama, whatever it is. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. I think that's such fun, uh, such fun blending. So, Michael, this film takes place during a period of time where a virus is spreading that takes away people's memories. Why was this film of interest to you? Well, we can say we didn't have enough of the pandemic, so I went and found another pandemic. <laughs> I mean, seriously, no, 
I, I wanted to see if we could handle movies like this because there used to be a time it wasn't before the pandemic happened. We used to have zombie movies. We used to have vampire movies. We used to have all sorts of things going on, killing people. But I think after COVID happened, we sort of eased off a bit, although we didn't really do a good job of easing because we still had COVID thrillers, which I really hope will go away at some point. But um, here is just a apocalyptic story or a pandemic story about something that we don't really have right now, thankfully. Why is memory so important in this film? I think memory is very important to this film because it's it's a way of knowing who you are. It's a way of establishing your identity. Without your memory, you don't really get to exist as a person. Um, it's This is a story about a relationship, a relationship that's impacted by memory loss. So how do you, how do you keep the relationship going? when you don't even remember the other person that you have a relationship with. I thought that was an interesting uh, aspect for this film. So a couple of the characters here are Emma and Jude. So how did they attempt to preserve their memories? So what's happening is that this disease that's taking people's memory is called NIA. I, I forget, ironically enough, I forget what it stands for. So please don't question me about that. Um, and it's essentially uh, a version of early onset Alzheimer's. So it's not explained how you get it. It's not explained how it's transmitted. There's no cure for it. There is an experimental treatment where they presumably drill a hole in your brain or get through it from the mouth. Don't ask me because I forgot that too. Um, but ultimately, the experimental procedure is not necessarily a success when it starts. So the people are not sure if they want to get it. And even if they want to get it, they can't get it because it's still in the experimental trial phase. And there's only a few people that are allowed into the study. So the couple, Jude and Emma, attempt to keep their memories by taking photographs, writing information on the back of them, getting memory tattoos on their, on their body, such as the phone number and the names of the partners and that kind of thing. Um, but ultimately, these things don't really have much of an impact. Let's talk about the performances. How were the performances by the main actors? Well, this is a, a romantic drama. So I was expecting a lot of romance, and I did get what I was looking for. I believe that there's great chemistry between the leads, um, especially in the parts where they're dating without this pandemic looming over their heads. Um, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of confusion when the man Jude starts to lose his memory, and he doesn't know what's going on, and he's trying to put on a brave face. So I think that was really well done. While we're talking about the stars of the films, what other films would you recommend from Olivia Cook and Jack O'Donnell? So Jack O'Donnell, in my opinion, can do nothing wrong. He started out in the big screens for all of us, mostly in Unbroken, the prison of war drama. 
um, and then afterwards he was in stirred up in 73, which I believe is the story of a, um, a spy infiltrating the Irish resistance while having to survive that um, because of an accident that's happened to him. So I think um, Jack O'Donnell is also well known for the miniseries I watched last year called The, the North Water, where he fights Colin Farrell on a ship, which is always fun. Um, on the other side, we have Olivia Cook, who is, um, we may remember her from the Bates Motel, and I didn't really like the Bates Motel because I thought it was just taken away from Psycho. And in all fairness, you know, just leave Psycho alone. But I would recommend her in, I've said this a few times, um, Me and All and the Dying Girl. That's a, a film where she is the dying girl. She's got cancer and two best friends are trying to entertain her by filming homages to classic films. So I've mentioned that a few times and I think it's a great film because it does talk about the meaning of a classic film and why we may want to make homages to them. While we're talking about your recommendations and your deep knowledge of film, what are some other notable films that you recommend about memory? Well, let's see if I remember, Dave. Um, <laughs> there's Relic, which we talked about last year. A story, a haunting story about a grandmother who may or may not have Alzheimer's and who may or may not be haunting her house. Um, there's also, as we have on AMI TV, um, The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind with Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet giving great performances of a relationship they may want to forget or they may want to keep. It's unclear into the end. And I would also recommend um, a French film, if we can all put on a French-speaking hats, called Emma. And that was out in approximately 2010 um, by Michael Haneke. And so it's the story of an older couple who is discovering that the wife has Alzheimer's. So I think it's just really a story about trying to keep love going, trying to keep the relationship strong, trying to fight against adversity and facing some of our deepest and unspeakable fears. So that's what we have for memory. I think I think you find that almost every movie we watch has to do with memory, especially if there's a flashback. That's a memory. Michael, uh, it's okay if you tell me you don't like this movie, but I'm a little surprised you didn't have Christopher Nolan's Memento on this list as a movie about memory um, in the way in which they told the story was so unique. But it's okay if you tell me from an entertainment critic point of view, you didn't like the movie. No, I, I do like it. I, I like Teddy. I like Guy Pierce. I'm always looking for Guy Pierce. He's, he hasn't done something as great as that one for a long time. Mm. Um... I think, you know, there's just so many movies about memory that some of them have to be forgotten. And I unfortunately <laughs> forgot that one. Um, I, need it, I need it tattooed to my arm. So, yeah. But um, I think one of the things that Memento, Memento has been criticized for is that it just puts the wife in the fridge and it basically kills her. So that's, that's a, a problem that some feminists have. 
with the with the idea that you know a woman dying is the man's main reason for assistance. That's fair. See, look, good criticism. I like that. I hadn't heard that one before. So that's that's positive stuff. Okay, Michael, let's uh, talk about the genre here of apocalyptic events. What advice do you have for someone thinking about making a movie about apocalyptic events? Well, I think, first of all, you don't need a big budget. I think you just need something that happens to everybody that you can explain well. My all-time favorite movie is probably Night of the Living Dead. If you need to know what happened with a small budget, just watch that movie. It's got political commentary coming out of the whistle. It's got everything you could possibly want with zombies and fixing up a house, and they're coming to get you, Barbara. Um, if you didn't get that reference, I apologize sincerely. But um, if you didn't get the reference, that means you need to watch Night of the Living Dead. Um, I think, I think in this film, one of the things that was missing was the um, was more emphasis on world building. I understand that there's a pandemic happening. I understand there's a a virus that's causing early onset Alzheimer's. But I'd like to know more about the newspapers. I'd like to know more about the scientists. I'd like to you know have some talking heads to really sell this virus to me. It's it's not too hard to do that on a low budget. You can just um I can hire Dave and Dave will come and do the newscast for your show or whatever and he will say that there is an apocalypse happening. <laughs> you know, I would be happy to take on those gigs. Uh, call my agent and we'll be happy to make that happen. Michael, you obviously recommend Night of the Living Dead, but do you recommend I take the time to watch Little Fish? Little Fish, I think I do recommend it. Um, I do recommend it if you're in a white headspace. I think if you've, if you've had enough of this pandemic, if you've had enough of viruses in general, um, it's okay to give it a pass. But I think it's, a, it's an interesting film. It's got a plot twist coming at the end. I won't wound it for anybody, but it's, you know, it's, I think in some ways it's kind of a summary of our lives at this point, trying to live together, trying to make the best of what we're doing trying to have hope for the future when there doesn't really seem to be much. I think in some ways it speaks to that anxiety that we have, and sometimes we just need to know that other people have the same anxieties that we do. Michael, thank you for this. Have a great weekend. You too, and please don't forget me. If you need to tattoo my picture to your chest, well, I mean, I don't know how much that would help because you can't really see your chest that well. (laughs) But whatever... I would have to uh, shave my chest before I could uh, put tattoos on it. I was trying to think of whether or not I should sing Don't You Forget About Me on the way out of here or whether I should sing some Sarah McLaughlin, I Will Remember You. But either way, I'll just tell you that that was Michael McNeely with a review of Little Fish, which you can find on Apple TV with audio description and closed captioning. Coming up after the break, we'll see what's cracking with Grace Scottfield. That's now, it's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. I do need to issue a small correction from the last segment. Michael McNeely and I started tossing around some Irish names and we misspoke. We were mentioning Jack O'Donnell as one of the actors in Little Fish. Jack O'Connell 
Jack O'Connell is the name of the actor. So didn't want to shortchange Jack on his uh, great work in his career. Let's bring in Grace Scofield for the Entertainment Report. Grace, what's cracking out there in the world of entertainment? Jonah Hill is taking a step back from promotions in terms of his new documentary, Stutz. So the last time Jonah Hill was on our television screens was in the 2021 Netflix film, Don't Look Up. And in the time since, he's been working on this new documentary called Stutz. He says, through this journey of self-discovery within the film, I have come to the understanding that I have spent nearly 20 years experiencing anxiety attacks, which are exacerbated by media appearances and public-facing events. This documentary explores the relationship between Jonah Hill and his therapist. So through this documentary, he was able to come to that understanding and that realization, which led to his decision to not promote the documentary, not go on press tours, not do any interviews for it. This is like the main interview he'll do for it. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Saying, if I made myself sicker by going out there and promoting it, I wouldn't be acting true to myself or to the film. So the actor hopes this decision will encourage people to speak out about these various mental health topics and encourage other celebrities to be honest about it as well. And this documentary, Stutz, will be released later this fall. Jonah Hill is probably becoming one of the most mindful and thoughtful people in all of Hollywood, whether it be some of the stuff he said about body image a couple of years ago, saying, hey, just don't comment on my body. Whether I'm, whether I'm looking svelte or whether I'm looking a little bit thicker, just leave it alone. Even the compliments feel like insults. And now talking about this, about openness, about his anxiety attacks and mental health. Man, Jonah Hill, this guy is uh, really very quickly becoming one of the most thoughtful, mindful people in Hollywood. And he is still really early in his career. There's a lot of good work that Jonah Hill still has to do out there on the Hollywood trails. So, hey, good for him. And Grace, thank you for bringing us this story. Of course. That is Grace Goffield with the Entertainment Report. Let's look ahead to this afternoon. When Kelly and Company hits the airwaves at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, Ramya Amuthan is the co-host of that show. Hey, good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you, too. What's coming up on this Friday edition of the show? We have our app update with John Bueller. Today we're talking about uh, how the Apple Watch could become a self-check tool for heart attack symptoms. I felt like this was a long time coming because of all the capabilities of the Apple Watch anyway. (laughs) I feel like I've heard that before. Exactly, like the arrhythmia and all these different things that it's already leading up to this. So pretty awesome tool. Um, We're also talking to friends from Robert Half Canada because their research, recent research shows that 25% of Canadian workers are worried about losing their job if the economy continues to worsen. So we're going to dive into it with Michael French, who's a returning guest on our show. And if you're ready to pair your favorite food with an audiobook recommendation, while well, Ryan Huey's highlighting this quiz by um, Book Riot, who that that they've put out that does exactly this. So you put in your favorite food, and they pair it with an audiobook recommendation. So kind of curious about that. Ramya, thank you for this. Funny that you mentioned food because after the break, Mary Mamaliti is going to be here to talk about the new season of Dish with Mary. So there's some synergy there. Thank you, Ramya. Nice. Thank you. That's Ramya Amuthan, the co-host of Kelly and Company, coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. As I mentioned, after the break, Mary Mamaliti will be here. She'll tell you all about season two of Dish with Mary. And we got something to give away. So don't go anywhere. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. The new season of Dish with Mary is in full swing, where you can find new episodes Tuesdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. The host of that show is Mary Mammoliti, and she's here to tell you all about it and to do a little bit of a giveaway of some good swag. Mary, how are you? Thank you for making time to be with us again today. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me back. You know I love coming to chat food with you all the time. So let's just take one question here about season two of Dish with Mary because the first season was a roaring success. You're back with number two. What are you guys cooking up this season? Okay, so this season, for those that haven't watched yet, why haven't you watched? Anyway. (laughs) Well, if you've missed an episode, AMI.ca or the accessible media app, the AMI-tv app for Apple or Android. Absolutely. So Dish with Mary, we focus on a chef, a dish, we do a lot of laughs, a lot of tips. Um, obviously, you know, I can't be too serious ever. Uh, so it's just, it's a lot of fun. And you get to take home so many great recipes. And this season, the lineup, oh my goodness, what a great bunch of chefs. We had uh, Andy Hay, fish tacos. So if you've never made them, this is a great introduction to them. Uh, Chef Jen Peters, we had some gluten-free pasta delicious and it will show you how to make it at home it's that simple um master bread baker oh by back corellos we made some focaccia delicious mm, chef Stephen mm. barrett pad thai right like who doesn't love pad thai some berry pie with tina lau um oh chef lauren marshall have you you've had the donair or have you heard of the donair oh i've eaten a donair too in donair. my life oh i've eaten a donair right? too so good and chef lauren marshall shows us how to make the vegan version of it which is so good right interesting chef saying sushi something i've never made before right so i'm making it along with everyone else okay so like you're you're expanding your horizons here too when we say hey we're trying to make this accessible and understandable to a new chef hey mary's along for the journey too absolutely absolutely and that's what i love so much about this show um it's because it takes me into places that i've never been before either Right, then we've got Andrea Bucket, steak salad. Who doesn't love a steak salad? Mm, mm, mm. Mary, I am getting hungry just talking about it. So you (laughs) used an expression there called take home. And this is the exciting part about this segment because we have an opportunity for folks to win some special ingredients in a box, a special box set of special ingredients. And I'm going to tell folks how to enter the contest in just a second. But Mary, let's give them a little bit of a preview of what's in this box. What's in the box? So we're going to start here with this big orange bag of pizza and pasta flour by the Good Flour Company. Mary, what makes this flour a must-have? Okay, so this flower, first of all, it is episode two with Chef Jen Peters. Um, And she walks us through, like I said, the gluten-free pasta. That is her flower. So she, I don't want to give too much away about the episode because I want you guys to watch it. But she created this gluten-free flower when she realized she was gluten intolerant. She's like a chef. How do I not eat gluten? Um, Right? So she created this this amazing product. I've used it. We've used it in the episode. And now you get to try it at home. Um, and you can, yeah, it's just so good. It makes pasta pizza. It works exactly like, um, your flour, but it's gluten free. mm -hmm. So here's where we start to see a bit of a theme because the next item that I pull Mm -hmm. out is a jar of Pomeralo de Tironi, a red tomato sauce that has dish with Mary and the logo right on the front of this. What makes this red sauce so delish? Okay. First of all, what makes this so delicious? One, it's tomato sauce. Teroni, <laughs> it's a company, right? It's a company that 
is local. Um, they're a restaurant. I absolutely love them. And all of this, there's a little tie to everything that's connected to me. Um, they are also from a hometown, my parents' hometown. Uh, they originated from there. Um, and the products that they make are absolutely delicious. And this is one of them that I wanted everyone to try. Honestly, if I could wear tomato sauce as an eau de toilette, like my <laughs> scent, I would. So would I. Right? Might have to get hungry all the time, but that is it. So Tironi Sud Forno Group, they are fantastic. And this is delicious. It's just ready to serve. So again, as you say, a lot of these things are interconnected. So the next item that I hold up here is a slim jar of extra virgin Aspero olive oil from Olearia San Giorgio. Got it. I'm, I'm doing my best, Mary. San, yeah. My, no, that is fantastic. My, I'm so impressed. My nunum could be rolling in her grave a little bit here, but I'm doing my best. So, Mary, walk me through this here. The extra virgin olive oil, why is this something that I should be putting in my pantry versus, say, like your standard canola oil or, or standard olive oil? One, this olive oil, it's pure extra virgin olive oil. Um, it's from a region, again, that I talk about where my parents are from, which is San Giorgio Morgetto. So Oleria San Giorgio is um, a Calabrian farm that is in San Giorgio Morgetto. So it's like a little town um, in the province of Reggio Calabria. And it has such a clean, distinct olive taste to it. It is delicious. Um, they are all over. You can get them anywhere. And this was one of my favorites and it has been for so long and so many years. And I wanted to share that with all of you because having the right, having good quality ingredients is what makes a dish, mm-hmm. right? So it could be mm-hmm. as simple as just, you know, olive oil, uh, cook up some garlic in that olive oil, toss it on some plain pasta. Can I tell you how good that is? That is delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but it's that olive oil that makes it. So it's all in the ingredients. And this is, a high quality ingredient. So the next thing here is getting some of that seasoning in here, right? Mm -hmm. Because the quality of the ingredients is great, but we can't be eating bland food. We got to get some seasoning. So I've got a box here, but inside the box is a jar of Vancouver Island sea salt for that Canadian flavor. Mary, what makes this sea salt so good? One, it's Canadian. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Everything to me, Canadian is delicious. Um, I love supporting local, and this was one of my favorite sea salts that I use on absolutely almost every dish. So I, I alternate between this and a kosher, but this sea salt, definitely try. It's it's a must try. Yeah, I love sea salt. I, I'm such a big fan of sea salt. I, I like kosher salt. I like all salt, Mary. Let's be clear. All, all, all salt right. is yeah. salt that I can get down with, salt. but I'm a big fan. Okay, we've got one more item here, and this one's a tool. It's a mm-hmm. Sarah Dolce branded pasta cutter with a wooden handle. I would say it almost looks like a little teensy tiny pizza cutter based on the around rolling cutting surface on the end. But how would I be using this one in the kitchen? Okay, so this one here, the difference is this has a fluted edge. So it's kind of got that wavy edge to it on the little round uh, um, disc that cuts the actual dough. So what you do with this is if you roll out a piece of um, pasta dough and you want to make your pasta by hand, this, you can just run it along that dough and it'll cut strips for you. You can cut squares and it gives it that little ruffled edge on the pasta. So it gives it that little, um, I don't know, a little fanciness. It zhuzhes it up. 
So it's not just a straight line. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, creates like a little bit of like a texture, like not a, not a right. biting texture, but like a feel texture of the pasta or the right. pizza for okay. sure. Okay, Mary. And so you've known me for a while. You know I like a little zhuzh. Oh, of course. <laughs> Let's go have a little flair on this. Got to have 22 pieces of flair minimum for Office Space fans out there. Okay, Mary. So it's one thing for me to be pulling these out of the box and showing them to you and holding them to the camera, but we want people to get their hands on these great tools. So I'm going to give folks the uh, details of the contest we're running here right now where we want an audience member to win these items and win this box. So to enter the contest, you must be 18 or older and live in Canada and you must share with us your own favorite recipe or a favorite recipe memory. So be sure to email the submission feedback at ami.ca. That's feedback at ami.ca. The deadline to enter the contest is August the 26th at 5 p.m. Eastern time, August 26th at 5 p.m. Eastern time and then we'll announce the winner on the Monday Monday, August the 29th show, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. Put Dish with Mary in the title. Mary, I've got to say goodbye to you in eight seconds here. So goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. It was so much fun. <laughs> it is so much fun. That's Mary Mamaliti, the host of Dish with Mary. That's all the time we have for the show this week. We'll be back on Monday morning. Until then, let's roll them credits, gang. Host, Dave Brown. News director, Mike Ross. Social media reporter, Nisreen Abdel-Majid. Sports reporter, Jeff Ryman. Audio technical producer and entertainment reporter, Daniel Penamondo. Descriptions by AMI's media accessibility team. TV technical producer, Bruce McLarian. Live production switcher, Sebastian McKenzie. Senior show producer, Andrika Delanarol. Producers, Paul Daniel and Marianne Dion jones Audio technical supervisor, Paula Deneen. Operations Specialist, Kyle Harper. Manager of AMI-audio, Andy Frank. Director of TV Production, Kara Nye. Vice President, Programming and Production, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback at 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2022, Accessible Media, Inc. An AMI original production. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.